Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. Good morning. I, uh, yeah, I, I figured that Nehemiah chapter 3 has so many Hebrew names. Um, if Kurt was reading today's scripture, that would have been one thing. We would have read through chapter 3, but since it was Craig, uh, yeah, I figured we'll read something that's maybe, you know, maybe a little bit easier to, uh, to pronounce. Uh, as you can go ahead and open your Bibles, by the way, to Nehemiah chapter 3. That is what we are, uh, are covering today. And as we come to the third uh, chapter of this book of Nehemiah, our third, um, third lesson in this study, you know, there, there may be times today when you think that I'm clearing my throat or coughing or sneezing, and with, with, you know, with no offense intended toward anybody with names that are similar to the ones we see in our text today, um, I, I just want to make it clear. I've, I've taken my allergy medication, and the sounds that you'll, be, that you'll be hearing will be me trying to pronounce uh, all of these Hebrew names, or at least some of these Hebrew names uh, that are recorded in this chapter. Now, it, it's not that uncommon uh, for someone to, to reach something similar to what we see here in the third chapter of Nehemiah. And just, you know, you, you see a bunch of names, and so you say, you know what, I, I can just skip over this because, you know, there, there's not a whole lot that's, that's here in terms of the story, and this doesn't really add anything to the story. I don't see how this applies to my life. Um, after all, you know, what's the point of putting forth the effort to sift through and, and much less pronounce uh, all of these names? Um, and so with that said, I just want to start us off with a very simple reminder. First uh, Timothy Second uh, Timothy, actually. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. All Scripture. Even those names? Even those names. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is in Scripture. All Scripture is profitable to us. It has a benefit to us. And this is a passage, this passage from 2 Timothy is a passage that I try to continually keep in mind uh, when I'm reading or studying scripture because I have the same temptation that everybody else does to just skip over sections like this one, uh, the one that we're going to cover today, that are filled with names that, honestly, I have a lot of trouble uh, pronouncing and which seem on the surface to have nothing to do with my life. But the truth is that when you are reading the Bible, you don't need to dig for gold. You don't need to dig for it because it's there. You're like a miner who's standing in a tunnel of just solid gold. And I'm not talking about that cheesy 70s show. You're standing in a tunnel of just solid gold. And can you imagine a miner standing in a tunnel of solid gold and just saying, you know what, I bet if I dig down deeper, I'll find something a little bit better. I'll pass on this stuff. No, that would never happen. And so, uh, you know, we all recognize how absurd that would be, and it's just as absurd to skip over 
any portion of Scripture because all of it has rich, uh, deep benefit to the reader. And in fact, this chapter uh, that we're covering today is so rich uh, that we're, this is part one. We're going to be doing part two next week. We're going to be looking at chapter three again next week. So between all this, all these names and everything, if you're reading between the lines, man, there is some rich, rich stuff here. Uh, we'll be covering half of it this week and half of it next week. Uh, my hermeneutics teacher, hermeneutics is the, the practice of reading and studying the Bible uh, and interpreting the Bible. Uh, my hermeneutics teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary was Howard Hendricks. Uh, some of you may have seen on my Facebook page, he went home to be with the Lord this week. Um, but in one of my uh, favorite books written by him, he once wrote, Many of us want a word from God, but we don't want the word of God. We know enough to own a Bible, but not enough for the Bible to own us. End quote. Man, when I read that, I think, you know, I, I want the Bible to own me. I, I want it to, to transform my life. But for that to happen... I have to read it. Even the parts that, uh, like chapter 3 of Nehemiah, seem like they would just be easier to simply skip over. So the very least that we should see when we come across chapters that are filled with names of people, whether you're talking about genealogies or what we're covering today, is that God doesn't forget anybody's name. God doesn't forget anybody's name. He won't hesitate to record the names of people who would otherwise be buried at the bottom of the dustbin of history. The reality is that he doesn't forget your names, or my name, either. So, you know, what a, what a great reminder uh, for times when we come to a chapter like the one we're going to explore today. So thus far in our study of the book of Nehemiah, we've seen that Nehemiah uh, talked to his brother Hanani when Hanani came back from Jerusalem, uh, asked, and he asked, how is Jerusalem doing? Because they're rebuilding <laughs> Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild the temple down there. And we saw that Nehemiah's heart was stirred upon finding out that the people and the city of Jerusalem, uh, but the people who were re rebuilding the temple were living in distress and turmoil because they were vulnerable. They, they, were, they were susceptible. And the city of Jerusalem was also in ruins. So in that sense, the city and the people who were trying to rebuild the city had something in common. But remember, uh, what we saw in the first chapter is that Jerusalem always <laughs> represents, it's symbolic of the place that God wants to dwell, and thus it represents you, and it represents me. It's the place where God wants to dwell. But sin and destruction often leave that place in utter shambles. So Nehemiah prays to God for four months. That's what we see in, uh, in chapter 1. He prays to God, begging God to open a window of opportunity and to grant him favor when he has the opportunity to request permission from King Artaxerxes uh, to go and rebuild the wall around the city which, of course, is the first step in rebuilding uh, a city in ancient civilizations because that was the first line of defense against invasions. You can't build a city if you can't be protected from the people of the land who might want to come in and stop what you're doing. So once permission was granted, and by the way, does anybody know the, uh, the significance of uh, King Artaxerxes giving permission to Nehemiah, aside from it was just him giving permission to Nehemiah to rebuild the city? Anybody? Would mean that the, the reemergence of the nation of Israel? Close, yeah. Uh, it has to do with Daniel chapter 9, where uh, the, the 69 weeks are laid out. And so that started the countdown to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Uh, so it was huge that King Artaxerxes gave this permission, because as soon as he did, 
tick, 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 the clock down to Jesus coming into Jerusalem started. So once permission was granted, Nehemiah goes down to Judah, to Jerusalem, and he surveys the damage for himself. And it was as bad as Hanani had told him. And so he rallied the people to rise up and rebuild the city, which had been in ruins for over a hundred years. And of course, as he expected and as he planned for, opposition did come, uh, but it wasn't going to dissuade him and it wasn't going to dissuade the people who were working alongside him from the work that God had called them to do. In fact, having seen this opposition at the end of chapter 2, it's encouraging to see as soon as we turn to chapter 3, the work is getting underway. So the opposition's right there, but so what? So what? The work goes on. And the application there, of course, was when we're doing God's work, we can expect opposition, but it's not going to stop what God has put in motion. So uh, remember that Nehemiah is a book about restoring things. Uh, it's about uh, you know, to, to bring things back to what and how they were supposed to be, whether it's God acting directly or whether it's God acting through his people which is often how he works. So the gist of this chapter is that none of us, uh, none of us was ever intended to be restored or to restore others in a vacuum, on our own. The Lone Ranger model, that's not the way God designed it to be done. And in fact, you can't do it alone. And Greg will attest to that. Greg will attest to that. You can't do it alone. If you're, you know, if you're talking about somebody whose life is in utter ruins, they need a community They need people to hold them accountable. They need people who are going to walk alongside them and help to restore their lives. lives. You can't do it alone. That's not the way that it was meant to be done. You might be able to get so far. You might be able to fake it for a season. But true restoration requires coordination and cooperation from a community, in the context of a community. And, of course, uh, the, the New Testament speaks this same truth. Uh, you know, we read Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 11 this morning. That's, that's what the, that's all about. But Romans chapter 12 is talking about the same thing. It attests to the same fact, that those who follow Jesus are designed to function the same way that a body is supposed to function. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He says, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is the same principle that we're going to see here in the Old Testament, that we're going to see here today in Nehemiah chapter 3. But I want to draw your attention specifically to the end of those two verses, the end of this passage. Paul starts off by saying that as followers of Jesus, we're like a body in that we each have a separate function in making things work, making it all uh, come together. But then he says that we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I know that I'm probably saying the obvious here, but that means that while we all belong to Christ, we also belong to one another. I belong to you guys, and you guys belong to me. And you guys belong to each other as well. We are members one of another. And so when one part is missing, there's there's reason to be sad. It's like a handicap. We're all part of one body and we all belong to each other. Now it's easy for us to, you know, to understand, to wrap our minds around and and accept the fact that, uh, you know, if we've trusted in Jesus for salvation, we belong to him. But to belong to one another... Man, that's, that's taking the concept of, of community to a much, 
much deeper level. And because we belong both to Christ and to one another, we need to understand that our spiritual growth in Jesus is designed to be, it must be experienced in the context of a community. There are no lone rangers in God's kingdom. You know, one of the things that you can never, ever truly say, you you can say it, but you'll be wrong, Uh, once you become a Christian is, you guys don't need me. You ever ever thought that? I've thought that before. Uh, The church doesn't need me. But nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is that each one of us has been given gifts that every single other person in the body of Christ needs, and only you can do what you've been gifted to do. Everyone in the body of Christ needs and belongs to everybody else in the body of Christ. And that, my friends, is what I call intelligent design. Because you put two people who are totally opposite one another into the same family based on their faith in Jesus, and all of a sudden these two people who have nothing in common other than their faith in Jesus are all of a sudden members one of another. That is intelligent design. Uh, The other thing that you can never say once you become a Christian is, I don't need you. And I know that I went through a season of my life where I thought that. Uh, I thought, you know, of the church, I don't need this. But the truth is, yes, I did. In fact, uh, we all do. Uh, Our spiritual growth and nourishment depends on it. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian because we belong to one another. When I read about how there's this movement away from the church into a a less structured spirituality, man, I, I can't help but feel a deep sadness that these people are walking away from the body of Christ because they're holding, you know, one of these two attitudes. They don't need me or, or I don't need them because church is designed to be a place. God's people are designed to be a people where you'll find a warm, vibrant, loving, accepting community where your spiritual growth can absolutely thrive. And so the person who walks away from the church thinking that they're going to grow and be just fine is like a plant that decides, you know, I'm going to be in a dry place in the darkness and I'm going to be just fine. No, that's not the way it works. It's going to die. It's going to die. So the book of Nehemiah is about God's faithfulness, uh, but we also need to understand that there's a lesson in here on how we must be faithful to one another as well. And while our chapter today is, is kind of long and, and difficult to read, I want to show you guys four principles from this chapter which relate to the importance of functioning, growing in, and experiencing restoration in the context of a community. So there are four principles that I want to draw your attention to today. The first is, you know, we'll just start with the obvious, and that is that God's work is a community project. It's a community project where people must work alongside one another. And that's not always easy because you have personalities that do this, you know, that butt heads and don't like each other necessarily, other than the fact that, oh, you know, we, we go to the same church or we're in the same, you know, we're both in the body of Christ. But the first principle is that we are designed to work next to one another. Everybody has an opportunity to serve. Nobody operates in a vacuum. People are working alongside one another. And, you know, once upon a time in the not-too-distant past, uh, the Western church invented a model by which the church 
uh, was really structured in, in, in which the pastor was kind of a jack of all trades. And so the pastor was responsible for, for preaching, for, for vision, uh, vision casting, for visiting the sick, for, and praying for the sick, and doing his studies, and uh, evangelizing, and counseling. And it wasn't until the hippie generation came along. Praise the Lord for the hippie generation. It wasn't until the hippie generation came along that somebody finally realized, hey, that's too much to ask of one person. You know, everybody else comes, you know, one day a week and they give one hour to the church and here's somebody giving, you know, 80 or 90 or 100 hours of their week to the church. And so uh, somebody finally realized, somebody in the hippie generation finally realized that the Great Commission applied to everyone who followed Jesus, not just clergy. Uh, This is a doctrine referred to as the priesthood of all believers and it was not all, and it's you know this this priesthood of all believers is not only foundational to the great reformation movement uh, it is also fundamental to the christian faith martin luther is the one who really led the charge of it in the 16th century writing quote in fact we are all consecrated priests through baptism as saint peter in 1 peter chapter 2 verse 9 says you are a royal priesthood and a priestly kingdom and revelation chapter 5 verse 10 through, uh, through your blood you have made us into priests and kings that's called the priesthood of all believers everybody has a responsibility because everybody is gifted to do something it doesn't just fall on one person it doesn't just fall on one group it falls on everybody who's following jesus Ministry belongs to every single one of us. So look at what we see here in the first couple of verses of Nehemiah chapter 3. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Then Eliashib, the high priest, God bless you, um, <laughs> uh, Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him... The men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Do you see what I see here, aside from a bunch of names that you know, we would never give to our kids? Um, Eliashib is the high priest. And what he does is he gathers his brothers together, and they're seen working right next to the common men from Jericho. And on the other side of them, Zakur, the son of Imri, is working. So the high priest and his brothers, who, by the way, were were Levites, so they all would have been priests, uh, began this great work, but by no means were they working alone. By no means were the Levites given the task by themselves to go and rebuild this wall. So much for the idea that preachers only work one day a week, right? But people from every walk of life are going to be involved here. That's what we're going to see. People from every walk of life are are there, working side by side, and that includes women as well, by the way, which would have been pretty uncommon back in this time. To give them the responsibility of building the military's front lines uh, was pretty significant. Nehemiah chapter 3, if you uh, glance down at uh, verse 12, we read, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs, he and his daughters. And so these aren't just common people. This is a guy who owns half of Jerusalem, and he's out there, and his daughters are out there with him. I mean, you would think that if he owns half of the city, man, you know, he can just take it easy, and, you know, I've got servants who are going to take care of this stuff. No. He's out there himself taking care of business with his daughters, with, with women, 
I mean, this isn't exactly easy work that they're doing. There's a lot of heavy lifting that's involved in building this humongous wall. And so the fact that there are women out there uh, doing what they can to contribute shows the heart of this community. Anyone who wanted to help was welcome. There was a job for anybody who wanted to help. What a great uh, picture. What a great image, not only of, of serious uh, seriously deep dedication, but also of equality because men and women are working alongside each other in this ancient civilization where you just didn't find that kind of thing. So in fact, if you were to read through this chapter and underline or circle the words next to him or after him or next to them or after them, you'd find that you would have 28 things underlined or circled or however, you know, color-coded, however you do it, you know, put a little star next to it, I don't know. You'd find 28 instances of these words in this chapter alone. And so the message of this chapter might be easy to, to miss, it might be easy to lose sight of, you know, if you're trying to pronounce all these names faithfully and so you're spending all your, your concentration and your energy trying to pronounce all these names. But when you see 28 instances of repetition, it helps to clarify the message that is kind of read between the lines here. The message of this repetition is pretty simple, and that is that everyone who is serious about being uh, active in God's work should be active in ministry. And there's more than enough work to go around. There is no truth that is more important for us to understand if we are serious about accomplishing God's work. If you're serious about accomplishing God's work, you have got to get your mind wrapped around this. There is always work to do. There's not a lot of time to rest on our laurels. There's not a lot of time to just sit around and wonder, oh, I wonder what I could do next, because there is always an opportunity that is available. And if you've ever heard somebody say, maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, I love work, it fascinates me, I can look at it for three hours on end, you know, then don't be too surprised because there are people out there who are like that, don't be too surprised to see that some of the people who are in, here in the city are not supporting this work. Uh, glance at verse 5 with me. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. We read, Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. These masters are doing the work. These leaders are doing the work. And the people are like, you guys are crazy. We're not taking part. We, we don't want any part of this. See, this is, a, this is a picture of people who aren't working because they're in sin. And sin will prevent a person from participating in God's work in one way or another. So the fact that Nehemiah records this actually gives the book some credibility, gives, gives his testimony some credibility because he's not uh, writing this you know, just to make it sound like this was a smashing success and everybody worked together. No, there was opposition in their midst. There were people who were you know, sitting over in the shade, you know, I don't know, sipping martinis or you know, doing something other than the work that was there to be done. And so he didn't accidentally you know, overlook the aspects of this project which were less than perfect. Uh, this isn't, you know, political propaganda. He's not writing to the king to boast of how great this one. You know, he's, he's giving an honest assessment. Um, you know, it's, it's not skewed. It's not slanted. It's not political. He's not trying to make it sound more successful than it really is. He recorded it honestly, and this is just 
full disclosure. This is just part of full disclosure. And he doesn't even try to come up with excuses. Nehemiah is not coming up with excuses or, or anything. He's just putting it out there. Hey, these people didn't participate in or support the project. But notice that while God has recorded all, all these names in here, he's inspired all these names to be recorded uh, of faithful people, God also doesn't overlook the slackers. He doesn't overlook the slackers. Their names are recorded right alongside those who were out there in the sun investing their blood, sweat, and tears in this project. But what I want us to see here before we we move on to the next point is that these people are, yeah, yeah, they're building a wall, you know, and that's the project. But they're doing more than just building a wall. I mean, anybody can build a wall. You know, that's not a big deal. These people are doing more than just building any old wall. These people are worshiping God by giving of themselves, by giving of their time and their energy and their gifts self-sacrificially. They're serving God self-sacrificially. They're not serving anybody else here. They're doing this for the sake of God and his work. These are people who loved God, and that's the, that's the reason they were out there. Because they're not getting paid. They're not out there to get a paycheck. They're out there because they love the Lord, and they want to restore the place that God wants to dwell, And so they made time for this very difficult work. And I'm sure they had other things they'd rather be doing. But you've got to think that this was a sacrifice that's greater than the sacrifice of any bull or any lamb. You know, don't get me wrong. It's not all about work. It's not about work. God does not want your work. You know that? He doesn't want your work if he doesn't first have your worship. Don't put the cart before the horse. You know, you're not going to earn any favor with God by working if it's not preceded by worship. He doesn't want your labor. He doesn't need your labor. He can get his work done without us, but he chooses to use us anyway. He wants our hearts. That's the first and foremost thing that he wants. And once he has our hearts, once we, we commit our hearts to him, surrender our hearts and our will to him, the rest will follow and works will proceed. But it has to start with worship. That's where it all starts. That's where, that's where working for God's kingdom has to start. Otherwise, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and it's repulsive to God. So it has to start with worship. The second principle that we gather from this chapter is actually pretty similar to the first, but it is different. There's a distinction, and that is that people uh, who are out there, these people who are out there, are not just working beside one another, They're working with one another. And there is a huge difference between working beside somebody and working with somebody. I mean, can you imagine the potential uh, chaos or disorder that could have erupted uh, if if people had assigned to do, uh, you know, the work that was assigned to them? Nehemiah has given out assignments here. But can you imagine what would have happened if, you know, they they decided to do their work without any consideration of the person who was next to them, who was working alongside of them? I mean, at the... At the least, I mean, best case scenario, you'd have a wall that has a, a you know a structural deficiency every every couple dozen yards, maybe, as you know this person's portion of the wall or, or section of the wall doesn't line up with this person's uh, section of the wall, etc. So this was not only a team effort; it was a team effort, but it was more. It also involved coordination and cooperation as well. Everybody is working with one another, not just next to one another. Now, mind you, there, there were 
problems. You know, even though these people are working alongside each other and with each other, there, there were structural deficiencies. I mean, you'd expect structural problems with a project this huge. I mean, this wall is several uh, football fields in length. I mean, that, that's to put it mildly. This was a huge, huge wall. So, of course, you're going to find some problems. Look at uh, verse 13, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 13. There we read, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. Repaired. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. That's from the English Standard uh, Version that I'm reading. But your, your translation probably says something similar. The reason I chose the ESV over the NASB is because there is a rep- repetition of the word repaired in there that isn't seen in the NASB, uh, but it is in the ESV. Um, and it is in the original Hebrew. So they had to patch up, these people had to patch up somebody else's work on a thousand cubits. And you might be thinking, well, you know, what's a thousand cubits? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, a cubit is approximately a foot and a half, which means that this section of the wall that they had to come behind somebody and repair was about five football fields in length. Five football fields. Uh, but know that while uh, repairs needed to be made, nobody gets the blame. You know, he doesn't point out, oh, the, these people messed up their section of the wall. So this guy and, and, his, and his people came and, and they, they repaired what these losers, who obviously don't know how to build a wall, uh, messed up on. So they're, they're not getting the blame. Nehemiah is not giving the blame. Instead, Hanan and the people from Zenoa simply get credit for filling in where it was needed. So we find the same thing when we come to verse 22, chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, After him, the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. Repairs on what? Just kind of in general. They probably walked around the city and made repairs where it was needed. You see, when when people are involved in ministry, which is the way it works, there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be errors. There, it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It can't be avoided. And sometimes I would even say that God will ordain a mistake. You'll make a mistake because God wanted you to make a mistake just because he wants to teach you to stop relying so much on yourself and to rely on him, to trust in him all the more. But instead of looking for someone else to blame, when you see things go wrong in ministry... You know, here we see, you know, the people are covering for one another, compensating for one another's shortcomings. Man, if, if, if only the modern church would, would get their minds around this. We, we'd, have so, we, we'd be so much more powerful. We, we, if only we could function the same way. But instead, what we see so often is, you know, people are, are quick to lay the blame on somebody or point fingers at somebody when things aren't going exactly as they want it to go. So, so they, they, the first thing they do is not find a way to cover for that, but they look for a way to place the blame squarely on that person's shoulders. And sometimes you'll even see churches split or fire their pastor over this kind of thing. You know, the board knows this, and and some of you know this. I've I've talked with some of you about this, but I go to a monthly uh, luncheon, you know, a a meeting with the local uh, evangelical free pastors who are in this, uh, this region and a couple months ago, we were going to be meeting at one of the other churches uh, on, on that month. But the day before, the pastor called me and, and asked me, um, and, and I could tell that he was shaken, but I, you know, I didn't think anything of it really. But he asked, you know, can we meet at your place instead? 
and that was kind of a, a sudden change of events, but you know, I'm, I'm game for it, so you know, it doesn't matter to me, I'm, I'm happy to oblige. And so the next day, they, they came in here, and, and this pastor who was supposed to be hosting it that month came in here, and he wept with us, this, just this small group of pastors, as he told us about how this guy in his church, this man in his church, had lashed out at him in front of a lot of people in the congregation, including the board, just the day before, accusing this pastor of all kinds of personal shortcomings over the past 15 years that he had served at this church. And he demanded on the spot the pastor's resignation. Because God, and this was his excuse, God had given him, this man, a vision for the church that he didn't give the pastor. And so therefore, the pastor should resign because God's given this other guy the vision and not the pastor. And this was a guy in the church who had power and influence. He was one of the founding members of this church. And so the pastor, obviously, was, was scared. He was concerned that you know, he was going to lose his job at best or it was going to rip the church apart at worst. You know, there's a potential for both of those things. But, you know, our, our monthly meetings are usually about an hour and a half, maybe two hours long. But that day, we sat in here and we prayed with and, and over this pastor for over four hours as he just spilled out his heartbreak over this. Somebody putting the blame on him instead of, you know, coming up with a solution, just blaming so nothing, understand this, nothing is more detrimental and poisonous to the work of God than pointing fingers and casting blame. You know, that's, that's not the way God wants it to be done. That is not how the church is designed to function. And that's not what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 3. We see the people working next to each other. We see the people working with each other, covering and compensating for somebody else's shortcomings. And this leads us to the third principle from this chapter. Principle number three is that some people are going to work more than others. Some people are going to invest more effort and more time than others. And that's just that's the way it works. That's the, and that's okay. In every church uh, and in every project within a church, there are some people who are going to give several hours of their time, and then there are going to be some who give you know, maybe a few hours and we've seen that the people of Tekoa didn't support the work of their leaders, but drop down to verse 27, chapter 3, verse 27. There we read, After them, the Tekoites, that is the leaders, repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. I was tempted to pronounce it awful, but I thought yeah, that, that might not be the correct pronunciation. Ophel? So I, I love that. You know, these, these guys whose people... Uh, you know, said, you guys are, are a bunch of, you know, fools getting out there and, and doing this stuff. They did it anyway. Verse 5 told us that the nobles didn't support the work of their masters. But here in this verse, we see that they continued in their work anyway. They did their share of the work plus some. And we see this happening all over the place in this chapter. Look at verse 24, for example. After him, Ben-Yui, or Ben-Yui, the son of Henadad, repaired... See, I should have had Craig try to pronounce all these things. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, the, the son of Henadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. So he repaired another 
That's, a, that's the key word here. He's going around making repairs. He repairs another section. In other words, when these people finished up their work and reported to Nehemiah saying, hey, you know, we're done. They didn't say, okay, we're done. We'll see you later. We're out of here. They said, we're done. Where else can we help? Where else can we serve? And the result is that they were... Uh, they put themselves into a situation where they could spend more time in this project than some of the other people. And that's just the way it is in so many areas of life. Some people are going to work a lot of hours. Uh, some people are going to work you know, fewer hours. And that's just the way it is. A lot of that has to do with gifting and, uh, and things like that. But see, we've all got this, this tendency in us when it comes to doing God's work. We've all got this tendency in it to look at it like a view of checklists. Like, okay, I'm going to get this done, and I'm going to get this done, and then I am done. And I can go home, and you know, I can watch my shows, or you know, do whatever it is that I like to do on my own personal time. But when we're talking about kingdom work, friends, you and I both know that the Lord's work is never, ever done. There is always something else that can be done. And I'm reminded of when Jesus said, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with them too. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. Uh, look, at, look at verse 20 with me. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Baruch. That's the name uh, the, the, the Hebrew name of the person who's probably had more influence on me, you know, more earthly influence, I guess, on me than anybody else. That was the name of my seminary professor, uh, Barry Leventhal. We called him Barry, but his Hebrew name is Baruch. Uh, and out of all the names that we find in this chapter, only Baruch, which, by the way, means blessed. Uh, it's part of the, the Jewish prayer, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, blessed is the Lord our God. Uh, only Baruch is said to have worked zealously. You've got a a couple dozen people, at least, listed here, and one person is said to have worked zealously. And this is also just how work in ministry is. Some people are going to get really fired up and excited about it, and some are going to be less than excited. And that's not to say that the other people weren't working hard. In fact, when we get to the next chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6 is going to tell us, uh, Nehemiah is going to tell us that the people worked with all their heart. Uh, So yeah, you know, some people give an hour, uh, some people are going to give several hours, but the important issue boils down to your heart. That's what it really all boils down to. Some people are going to work zealously, some people aren't, but how, how ironic or uh, coincidental that the person who is zealous is blessed. Something to think about. You know, I, I normally um, you know, don't like to, to call people out or do anything like that in the middle of the sermon. I don't like to embarrass anyone. But one of the reasons that I feel so blessed to be here with, with you guys is that we have a few of our own Baruchs. Um, you know, I, I don't always express my gratitude as fully as I probably should, uh, as, full, as, as much as I, uh, you know, appreciate your contributions to the church. But know, for those of you, uh, and you know who I'm talking about, know that I see your work, know that I know what's going on behind the scenes. And man, I, I see your zealous spirit. I see how you guys are willing to fill in the gaps wherever you find one. And I'm sure that, you know, these, these Baruchs, uh, would never agree that their contributions are uh, much of a big deal, but I want to say thank you to those of you who serve here zealously because it is a big deal. It's why we're here. It, you, you guys make it happen. And so I feel so blessed to have 
those of you that, uh, that I'm talking about, working not only with me, uh, but alongside me, or not only alongside me, but with me, doing God's work here. So the, the fourth and, and final principle uh, that I want to bring our attention to is just kind of an overall principle here, and that is that each person faithfully completed the task that had been given to them. There's not one instance in this entire chapter of somebody walking off the job. There are people who opposed it, but the people who committed to it, they committed to it, and they finished it. They finished the task that had been given to them. And, you know, it's got to be hot as anything out there. I mean, it's really hot. And they don't have air conditioning, by the way. You know, they, they, they might have a little hut to come in, to walk into. Maybe they have some caves. You know, I don't know. But it's hot out there, and they braved the elements anyway. I'm sure that there were easier tasks, other things they could have been doing. And some people worked longer than others and worked with more uh, zealousness than, uh, or more zeal than others. But each person finished the task that had been assigned to them. Each person saw their work through to its completion. And the only exception was these, uh, these nobles from Tekoa who apparently just didn't want to get their hands dirty. You know, when I read that, or when I, when I think about that, how everybody out there completed their work, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I get caught up thinking, you know, what a great honor it must be to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant falling from the lips of our Lord Jesus upon coming face-to-face with him someday. And I don't know about you, but man, do I ever want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, in order for us to do God's work faithfully and fully, we need to understand that we're called to work alongside one another and we're called to work with one another. Uh, Each one of us has a specific role based on your gifting. How has the Holy Spirit gifted you? That's kind of like Nehemiah assigning tasks. Yeah, the Holy Spirit has assigned each of us a task, and he's he's done better than Nehemiah. He's gifted us to do what he's called us to do. So how are you gifted to serve? That's really what the question of this whole chapter boils down to. How are you gifted to serve? And the way to get the question Um, that question answered, is not necessarily what you think the answer is. Uh, If you want to know how you're gifted, my experience tells me that the best way to find out is to ask the people who are closest to you. Because there there are a ton of people out there who think they are gifted for leadership, and they're not. They would blow stuff up. They would destroy anything that they touch. If you want to know how you're gifted, you'll get the truth from God's people who are closest to you. And you might be gifted in a way that you don't even realize yet. And, you know, you know, I talk to people about this, and a lot of people find this hard to believe. But when I first went to seminary, I had no idea what my gifting was. I had no idea what I was going to do with a, with a master's degree in apologetics. I, I really didn't. All I knew was that I had this heart that wanted to do something for Jesus and do something great for Jesus, but I didn't know what, and I didn't think I was gifted for teaching at all. Because when I was in college, I had to give a speech once to a classroom of about 15 people, and I couldn't sleep the night before. And I hated every second that I was up there. I was so nervous. Uh, I... I never would have thought that I had a gift for teaching. I never would have thought that it was in me at all. It it took a trip to Moldova. It took a trip, you know, six or 7,000 miles away to figure out that I had this gift in preaching and teaching. I had no idea before that. And I came back and I said, you know, honey, you know, talking to my wife, honey, 
I think I'm going to have to change my emphasis in seminary because I think that this is what God's calling me to do. I got over there. They said, you're the seminary guy, so you're going to preach. Okay. You know, I, I had no idea. And so I figured out after, uh, you know, four and a half weeks there, I can do this. And, and I actually like doing this. And so, you know, just know when you're thinking about how you're going to serve God. You know, we're not all going to give equally. That is perfectly fine. It's done that way by design because we can all give of ourselves equally with our whole hearts, giving wholeheartedly. By God's grace and by the strength and guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will all be able to complete the work that God has not only called us to do, but he's gifted us to do it. He has our days numbered. He knows how much time we've got left on this earth. And the third chapter really is a reminder. It's a call to us to use that time for his glory in order that his glory would be displayed through us and that his gifts would be used by us as we work alongside one another and with one another to accomplish God's will in our lives. And friends, there is a lot of work to be done. We live in one of the most godless regions in the whole country. So the opportunities are out there like crazy. The question really is not how much work is there to be done, but how many people are there that are willing to do God's work in this region. Because it is far too much for any one person or even a small group of people to do. We have to work together. Everybody needs to be in this project together. That's the way God intended his will and his works to be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of great mercy who does not call the equipped, but that you equip the called. And you do it not because we deserve it. You, you, you save us from the penalty of our sins, not because we've done anything to please you, but because it pleases you to save us. And Lord, we thank you just for, for what you've done, for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. We deserved your wrath, but he took it for us. Not because of our goodness, but because of your love. And so Lord, I pray that we would, in light of that truth, grow in our love for you, grow in our commitment to what you've called us to do in accordance with the things that you have gifted us to do. And may we have one spirit, Lord, one spirit, and that is to work for your glory with each other, alongside one another, and whether that means a lot of time or a little time, Lord, may it all be for your glory because we belong to you because of your greatness. So much more this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation 
in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.